Shift is brought to you by Continental. As one of the world's leading mobility suppliers, Continental is developing intelligent solutions to make driving safer, more efficient, and more connected. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Hey, it's Leslie Allen, editor of Shift Magazine. Hi there, it's Alexa St. John, covering tech and suppliers. On the podcast today, we're pleased to have joining us Anthony Fox, former secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation under President Obama. Today, he's with us discussing President Biden's infrastructure proposal, uh, the appeal of removing certain highways, and ways to ensure that all communities benefit from transportation's future. Uh, Alexa, off the bat here, obviously, we've already talked to Anthony. Uh, I'm curious if you have any key takeaways from our conversation before we uh, we go to our, our interview. Yeah, I mean, I really uh, enjoyed our conversation with Anthony. I was so glad he was able to join us. One of the things that really stands out to me that I think, you know, we're covering more and more and trying to look at more and more is this idea of transportation equity. Uh, we know that, you know, some issues with inequities uh, stem back a long time to the highways, which, you know, we'll get into quite a bit during the episode. But I really think that this is getting a lot more attention uh, throughout the industry. Things like making uh, the autonomous shuttles of the future uh, more accessible, making sure that uh, the innovations and technologies uh, that companies are working on now benefit all communities and, and don't do hurt to communities. Things like Urban air mobility is one thing that comes to mind where noise could be uh, more harmful than helpful in some areas. Uh, so I really appreciated his, his comments uh, addressing a lot of those topics. And I think it's something that we'll definitely be covering more moving forward. Yes, Alexa, those are really, really great topics and long overdue for discussion on this podcast. So with that, why don't we go straight to our interview with Anthony Fox? Secretary Fox, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Great to be with you. Now, are you, uh, are you in Charlotte these days or where, uh, where is home now? I'm, uh, I'm bouncing back and forth between North Carolina and Maryland. I happen to be in Maryland today, but, but, um, but I'm always happy to be in North Carolina. Obviously, a ton going on in the transportation space right now. Uh, President Biden has proposed a, a $2 trillion infrastructure plan that that really overhauls uh, America's infrastructure as we know it. Uh, maybe to start out, can you provide some context on, on how this plan uh, kind of compares to past plans? Is this, is this evolutionary, revolutionary, et cetera? What does this really uh, mean? I think it has the potential to be both evolutionary and revolutionary um, in the sense that uh, from, from, from the time Joe Biden was a candidate for president, um, he he had a, a an idea of not just trying to get the country back on its feet, but trying to put the com- country in a position to be even more competitive in the global economy. Uh, and frankly, I think it is it is critical, and I think he's pointed this out pretty uh, pr- pretty well that the rest of the world has seen the the United States um, kind of go back and forth in terms of its global. Um, interest uh, in terms of its participation in um, in helping to manage um, uh, the world economy and other things um, as as well as any country could. 
we we are in a position right now where the rest of the world is looking at us uh, and, and questioning whether we are a reliable partner and, and whether we have um, the wherewithal as a country to, to lead the world still. And I think a big part of his domestic program is really focused on trying to make the country the example it has traditionally been to the world of where most countries in this world want to be, uh, the most innovative, uh, the one that is uh, putting the infrastructure in place to, to have a growing economy, uh, one that is uh, helping to make the investments in education and other things. Um, to be the beacon of the world, we have to, we have to walk the talk. And so, and so I think that's part of what his, his idea is. So in terms of transportation, there's a lot to say. I mean, first, uh, we've been underinvesting for a long time. Uh, I'm somebody who, who uh, spent part of my, uh, my, my life as transportation secretary, traveling with the vice president, uh, Biden at the time, uh, pushing for a long-term transportation bill. But back then, we were happy just to get the bill put together. And it wasn't like a huge new investment. There was some new policy, um, not as much as I would have liked at the time, but what we could get done in, in the Congress we had. Um, but the ambitions of this president uh, are, are really pushing pushing the edges. Bigger investment, um, more innovation in the investment, more attention to equity issues, more attention to research and development, and frankly, a broader definition of infrastructure than we've traditionally had. So I, I think it's both evolutionary and revolutionary. You know, you touch on something very interesting talking about your time with then Vice President Biden. How hard is it? Can you give us some context to really make that meaningful progress? It's hard. Um, it's hard because, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, remember earmarks went away back in 2010 or so. And when that happened, uh, transportation bills, you know, for better or worse, were built off of earmarks. Um, and people on both sides of the aisle felt that they had some way of articulating to the people back home why they voted for a big spending bill when it came to transportation as a result. Um, now, uh, post earmark, and we can argue whether they're back or not, but, but post earmark, um, getting those deals done was incredibly difficult. And what we ended up doing was we ended up taking the, the issue out to America. And uh, the vice president, uh, Biden at the time, and I traveled from uh, Florida up through uh, Virginia, uh, barnstorming the country, pushing for what became the FAST Act, which was signed in 2015. But I spent a lot of time with him in the course of trying to get that bill passed. And I can tell you that um, notwithstanding all the atmospherics in Washington, no one has a better relationship with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle than than President Biden does. Um, no one has a passion. I don't think we've seen a president who had uh, this kind of passion for infrastructure since Eisenhower. And there've only been a handful of them um, in the history of our of our country, dating back to, uh, to Abraham Lincoln. Um, and so I, I really think he's set out. And frankly, I think if COVID, the pandemic hadn't been such a big issue, I suspect this would have been the first thing he would have led with out the gate. So um, he's, he means it, and he's got a great Secretary of Transportation. He's got a great set of ideas. And the question now is, can Congress find a way to get to yes? 
you know, every year we we see this annual grade from the American Society of Civil Engineers on America's infrastructure. Uh, it's up to a C minus this year. So do you think that that's on target? And how does America's infrastructure compare to other countries? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, when I was secretary, we were getting D's. So I, I take some credit for getting us up to C with the with the FAST Act, FAST Act passing. Um, but um yeah, it's unacceptable, um, but but a big part of the unacceptability of it is the degree to which we we have not fully examined the the future needs of our country. Uh, it's not simply a question of whether there are potholes in the roads or whether our freight rail systems are jammed up in certain parts of the country or whether our ports have good access. It's also a question of what what kind of what kind of country do we want to be? Now, I happen to believe that some some piece of our infrastructure deficit is the idea of repairing stuff that we don't need to utilize anymore. Um, And so there's actually a fiscal um, driver to to starting to look at actually taking down infrastructure that's no longer providing the economic advantage that we once thought it did, that's no longer providing a travel advantage that we once thought it did, uh, and that may even have been part of what uh, created some of the divisions, the physical divisions in certain communities that we uh, that we've historically now started to recognize. So um, there's that piece of it, but then there's the other piece of like what new investments, what new things are we going to need to be thinking about um, going forward? And sort certainly, with such a, a concern uh, globally about climate change. Um, and, and the fact that mobile sources are now in the U.S. the largest single contributor to climate change, um, upping the CAFE standards, getting cleaner vehicles on the road, all of those things are going to be critical parts of it. Uh, and the support systems for that, the electric charging stations, uh, et cetera, are going to be a critical piece. So there's there's a lot of new stuff that we need to think about. Um, and, you know, if you look back at our transportation bills, the, the highway formula hasn't been adjusted since the late 2000s. Um, so even though population shifts have occurred, as the recent census makes us makes clear, um, the funding hasn't followed those population shifts. So even, even the old formula isn't working anymore. So we have a lot of things that we need to fix, and it's not just the amount of money, it's the type of policy. You know, one of those uh, things that uh, people talk about needing to fix, you know, we saw how the events in Texas over the winter uh, with the electric grid really, you know, opened everyone's eyes to these problems and things to fix. What what all is the shortcoming of our grid? And is it in this regional approach? And, you know, how does this, uh, you know, Biden's proposal address a grid that's this fragile? Yeah, what one of the problems that we have to just make it very simple and easy to understand is that our grid system is a lot like our uh, Christmas tree lights. You know, if, if one light goes out, then everything that follows it goes out too. That's how the grid is organized. And, and there's a lot of discussion now about distributed power where you don't have essentially a single line tying all of these different outputs together where you you actually if one block goes down it doesn't take out the rest of the cities for example so um, how do you do that you can do that um, with a varied degree of inputs uh, there's a there's a view that solar um, 
if you if you place solar uh, and spread it out across the country, you could uh, you could create these sort of micro um, uh, units of electric power that can that can back up the traditional system. Um, there are a lot of thoughts about how to do it, but the reality is is that um, the old kind of hub and spoke system, if you will, or the the chain system of of creating um, energy and and distributing that energy through single channels, I think is something we're going to have to move away from. And that's all while we're also trying to move away from coal and and fossil fuels and and other things. So we have an opportunity as we start to drift away from the conventional um, incumbent uh, sources of power to build a more distributed system. And I, I do think that's a, a big part of what the future is going to hold for us. Speaking of a transition from fossil fuels toward electric vehicles that, that we see in the auto industry is front and center these days. The infrastructure proposal that President Biden has put together calls for uh, you know, tens of thousands of, of electric charging stations. And I'm curious, do, do you think, do we need to replicate the idea of, of a gas station on, you know, many corners in a city or every mile or so on the highway? Do we need to re replicate that in order to get consumers to, to buy in or, or do we need to kind of fund, is that one of the things we need to fundamentally rethink? I, I you know, I, I think we, we should, we should have, uh, we should have innovation in, in how, how we create access points for, this uh, this new source of power that can fuel our, our roadways and uh, there cer certainly will be and should be kind of the the old school station type of type of uh, layout um, but even that may leave some communities out and may 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 uh, there may be other mechanisms that can be developed that would be more um, uh, more varied. And, and, and I think that's one of the opportunities that this administration has, you know, backing 500,000 charging stations across the country is that the sheer buying power of the federal government um, to, to fuel literally um, innovation in how these uh, charging stations are deployed and whether there are different models that need to be um, put out there. I think that is, uh, is, is critical. I know, for example, in California, where they're using a lot of the Volkswagen money, um, there's a, there's a real push for, um, you know, making sure that low income communities have access to charging stations, for example. Um, and, uh, one of the other questions that will emerge as this all happens is, um, you know, the ways in which people pay for that charging. Um, there are a lot of unbanked people, for example. There are a lot of people that don't have smartphones, for example. And so when you require somebody to have a credit card or a debit card or a smartphone to access some of the payment systems, that's going to create a limitation. So because the public sector is driving this, I think the public sector has an outsized say in how these, uh, these systems and mechanisms start to get deployed. And I hope uh, a lot of these issues are paid attention to. Secretary, can electric vehicles, I mean, you mentioned earlier climate, uh, can they really make a dent in reaching some of the climate goals that are out there? Um, or, you know, are they too late? Is it something that, you know, by the time it's, they're widely adopted and, and fleets turn over, it's 2020, 2040 or something? Yeah, it's a great question. And look, I think 40 years ago, um, it would have been a much more difficult transition to make. 
I think that we are we're entering a time where um, a lot of companies have large fleets that people utilize. You know, car rental industry is is one example, um, but it's not the only example. Um, obviously, the rideshare um, world is another example. But but you know, imagine if we can incentivize fleet owners to rapidly adopt electric vehicles. That in and of itself would make a huge and immediate difference in the conversion of the overall American fleet. Um, you know, I think over time we we've sort of been trending towards less and less focus on personal vehicle ownership. And if you look at all the OEMs, each of them have in different ways ideas about how to make that conversion happen. Some companies are now starting to allow people to pay a certain amount per month and they can switch out cars um, every so often if they want. Um, and, and these are, these are um, business models that I think uh, companies are trying to achieve because they recognize that people uh, have different tastes and different needs. And frankly, most people don't, um, don't want to spend you know, thousands of dollars for an asset that's going to sit idle for 95% of the time. So um, I think we're going to find more business models that are fleet oriented. And as that happens, if we can use this moment to incentivize those fleets to become electric, it will spur a more rapid change. Um, traditionally, and I think this is implicit in your question, things like the seatbelt, for example, took 25 years for the fleet to turn over to have seatbelts in cars because um, you know, you have people who have a car on the road that's 20 years old. Not everyone buys a car every every year. So it took a while for that conversion to happen. I think we can see a more rapid conversion here, but it's going to be, in my view, we should incentivize personal vehicle uh, purchases that are electric, but we should also make a real effort to get these fleets uh, to be greener. You mentioned one aspect of the infrastructure bill also is that it kind of addresses some longstanding inequalities in the transportation system. Uh, and you also alluded to earlier, there's the idea that it's not just addition anymore, but we kind of need to get rid of, of uh, traditional things that aren't working. And I'm talking about highway removal in this case, which is uh, something that you've kind of advocated in certain areas for, for a long time. What is it like just to see the idea of highway removal gather momentum and be front and center today when six years ago, uh, it would have been, you know, kind of a, something that few people were really talking about. Yeah. We, you know, we had some experience with it in the, in the Obama administration, Rochester, New York tore down uh, part of one of its freeways. And we were involved in trying to help Syracuse, New York with I-81 and, uh, and a few, actually uh, the, the viaduct up in Seattle was one that we also uh, worked on, which is uh, uh, now, uh, buried under uh, the uh, uh, the shoreline there and uh, opened up uh, the city quite a bit. So we've had some, but it's been one by each, you know, and it, it, it having it now part of a national conversation, I think is, is, is fantastic because um, we, we really, we were in such a hurry um, 60, 70 years ago when the, when the highway system was built um, that the, the collateral damage of it wasn't accurately assessed. And there, there are communities out there right now, people even, whose families were dispossessed of land and property 
and not properly remunerated for it. Um, there are neighborhoods that were literally bifurcated. You go to Baltimore now, there's a literally a, a freeway that was started and never was finished, but still uh, split a neighborhood in two. So we, we have these vestiges of this system that, you know, in, in a lot of ways were um, emblematic of the time uh, and in, in, emblematic of the attitude of the time. Uh, which in the words of Bill Connor, uh, the, the sheriff of Birmingham, Alabama, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a matter of mind over matter. Uh, I don't mind and you don't matter. And that's how communities felt. Um, and um, so the idea that we're now talking about correcting some of that and starting to reclaim some of that, that land, uh, maybe repurpose it, uh, maybe create more open spaces, maybe affordable housing, whatever, uh, whatever can be done, I think is, um, is really important at a time when we're trying to restore the fabric of our country and make it perhaps better than it's ever been by connecting people who, um, you know, who come from different walks of life and maybe have different income levels, but share the love of this country. Um, we've got we've to figure out a way to live together. And part of that is fixing our physical spaces to um, to to match our our our, our national uh, ethos. It's kind of fascinating to consider that that part of that national ethos, I, I would say, is is this kind of cultural reverence and nostalgia for the, the greatness of the you know the interstate infrastructure project, uh, and you know now there's a reckoning with that. Yeah. Do you? What's the solution? How do we? Re- Renumerate for for the problems that have been created in the past, and uh, can that ever really be? I don't know. Fixed is the right word, but properly compensated for. Yeah, um, there there are people's homes that won't come back, um, neighborhoods that won't come back quite the same way. Um, so, to some extent, a lot of the damage that was done has been done. Um, but they're pretty good records of what was done in the, at the time. And, and I think unlike, um, some of the other conversations, um, this is one where you really could go back and, and, um, and, you know, develop a compensation program for those families that were, uh, that were left, left out. Um, but I also think you can you can do things like context sensitive design of, of freeways, uh, even existing freeways as we think about building back better to to make them uh, less of an eyesore in the places where they are. Uh, I think you can certainly tear down some of them because we're not seeing the travel advantage that was anticipated in some cases. And even where you do have it, the old street grid um, probably is, uh, is, is not always inferior in terms of travel advantage to, to a freeway. Um, so I, I think every community that takes this on is going to be having uh, its own unique conversation about how they want to place make. And I think the most important thing about that conversation is not just the output of it, not just what changes on the physical structure, but the conversations will necessarily get into these issues of race and class and history and and future. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's the more um, exciting part to me is is to see Americans um, struggling earnestly with what kind of community they want to become, not just where we've been, 
but where we want to go as a country and as a community. We're going to take a short break uh, for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Every year, about 36,000 lives are lost on U.S. roadways. Continental is working to reduce that number to zero through advanced safety technologies that are available right now. Nearly 10,000 lives could be saved every year, and 1.1 million injuries could be prevented if currently available safety technologies existed on every vehicle. The technology is already here to help you get safely there. From lane departure warning systems to emergency brake assist, today's advanced driver assistance systems provide the building blocks for the automated driving of the future. Continental is using its full innovative prowess to drive this trend and develop intelligent technologies that assist the driver in critical situations. The advantage? Increased safety, more convenience, and greater efficiency. Continental's commitment to the long-term strategy of Vision Zero, zero fatalities, zero injuries, and zero crashes, will continue to drive developments in safety technologies, making safety available to everyone. This means working on new systems that improve vehicle safety across all vehicle classes. With Vision Zero in mind, Continental is continuously innovating solutions that contribute to greater road safety in and outside the vehicle. From sensors, control units, and motion control solutions to human-machine interface technology, intelligent infrastructure solutions, and software, Continental masters the building blocks of automated driving and connectivity, leading the way to fully automated vehicles and a safer world. No matter your destination, advanced safety technology can help you get safely there. For more, visit Continental.com. Now back to our conversation with Anthony Fox. You know, one of the, the indirect consequences of these highways kind of running through, through cities now is, is also the, the pollution that they've brought to the residents who, who remain. And I think that, you know, there's well documented that there's, there's public health concerns, uh, you know, increase in asthma, for one example. Uh, how do we, is that almost more of an intractable problem to, to address, you know, yeah. the highway out? How do we begin to, to address that aspect of transportation inequality? It, it's a, you know, I'll use my, my neighborhood as an example growing up. Um, my, my neighborhood was bordered by two of the most frequently traveled freeways on the East Coast, I-77 and I-85. When I looked up in the sky, I could hear airplanes whizzing over the top because the airport was nearby. Like these communities, you know, it wasn't necessarily the case that the value of the property these people lived in was, was you know, inherently lower than, it, than someplace else. Um, but it was made lower um, because of what was built there and the intensity of what was built, not just transportation infrastructure necessarily, but also um, uh, sewage plants, uh, incinerators, uh, other physical infrastructure that the public needs. A lot of these communities had all that stuff concentrated in those areas. And you talk about unjust enrichment, um, you know, just imagine uh, having you know, the impact that the, the, the cumulative impact of all that infrastructure in your backyard affecting, you know, your ability to build wealth and actually um, that that externality that you're living with was also creating a, a an artificial uh, inflation in property values across town. So, it you know, when we think about wealth transfer in this country, 
Um, poor, poor folks in this country have 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 really lived with uh, a lot of obstacles to wealth creation, and others have been able to benefit from from that, and it hasn't been recognized. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I just think we've we have not had this conversation. And by the way, a lot of times when pub- the public sector is thinking about putting things one place or another, there is powerful. As powerful voices of wealthy people um, have have historically mattered more, and if you think about the beginning of the um, highway system, we're talking about the late 1950s. A lot of the planning happening then and to the early 60s, prior to the Voting Rights Act, prior to many African Americans really having the ability to elect representatives of their choice, much less be elected themselves. So you're really talking about you know communities that were seen as invisible, um, it, you know, being uh, really um, overwhelmed by a lot of this decision-making and not really having the tools to fight to fight those things. So, it, you know, that's our history. Now, that does that mean that, you know, America is a terrible country? No. What it means is that we, we have a responsibility as... Um, as a heterogeneous society, as a society that um, that that carries forward enlightenment ideals of the uh, uh, the value of human dignity and each individual person, uh, we have a responsibility to be self-examined about things we've done before and to try to correct those things and to try to fix as much as we can going into the future. So. Um, that's the spirit in which I talked about this and worked on this issue as transportation secretary. And uh, I don't think it's political at all. I don't think it is Democrat or Republican. I think it's right or wrong. You know, secretary also on that public health front, um, and these are all really important conversations, but, you know, we know that black citizens are disproportionately likely to be the victims in, you know, pedestrian crashes is this just another consequence to, you know, how we've built our infrastructure and it, can we build our way out of that? Yeah, it, it, you know, it is, it is in part a consequence of that. Um, less than 50% of the low income communities across this country have adequate sidewalks, much less bike lanes. Um, and so it's not surprising that you would see uh, an, a, a higher than normal um, uh, an incident and accident rate of pedestrians and bicycle deaths in, in low-income communities. Now, the, the reality is also that not all Black communities are low-income communities, but when you look at a place like Atlanta, um, I'm reminded of, of a young woman who um, took her two kids to the grocery store, long bus trip, comes back, um, gets off at her stop, and the, the crosswalk is about half a mile up up the road and her house is right across the street so she takes a chance to walk across the street one of the kids breaks loose gets hit by a car and killed and and uh those types of things happen in lower income communities because we haven't we haven't put the infrastructure in place now as a practical matter historically a lot of that um, sidewalk infrastructure has been more state and local focused than federal um, but you know, again, I think as we think about what the country really needs, how do we how do we 
how do we build the country that allows people to be safer? I think uh, Secretary Buttigieg is saying it just right. We need to build our, our road systems, our networks for people, um, not cars. And uh, when we think that way, when the federal government puts resources in place to do that, we have an opportunity to close that gap. Sometimes it seems that, you know, obviously the transportation barriers to economic mobility are physical, such as the highways that we've been talking about. Um, but sometimes that barrier is just simply a lack of access to transportation. Yeah. So how's America doing in terms of ensuring everyone has the necessary transportation to access jobs, for example? Yeah, um, we're, we're in a really interesting moment when it comes to that. I mean, before COVID, I would I would have said, uh, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, and I would say, in, in particular, um, I think rural communities are um, struggling with, with you know, what used to be a, a farm-to-market system, a, a way of getting from, um, from, from the far-flung parts of a given state or region into population centers where they could sell sell goods, but the economy of rural areas um, and the connection it has to the larger economy is partly an issue of transportation. And then you have um, in cities, you do still have transportation deserts. You still have places where uh, the transit system doesn't quite reach um, people quite as much. And uh, COVID has made it harder because transit systems um, lost so much, so much revenue a lot of systems reduce service substantially um, and getting that service cranked back up is going to be tough. So how do you do it? I think, um, I think the, the concept of inner city passenger rail is actually really important, uh, particularly for rural access. Um, I think having strong, uh, higher speed inner city rail um, could be a game changer in terms of job access for people who live in rural communities. I also think that, um, Operating support for our transit systems is necessary. Um, these recent uh, acts by Congress have provided some of that in an emergency situation, but it really should be a permanent part of the federal program to support um, operating uh, systems for our transit agencies across the country. Those two things alone would make a huge difference in, in giving um, people and also systems operators the ability to ensure greater connections. Secretary Fox, are we at an inflection point now because of COVID uh, and people changing their transportation habits that this is kind of a silver lining and an opportunity to, to get them to consider uh, inner city rail, like you mentioned, or, mm -hmm. or on, the, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, biking to work or, uh, you know, alternate habits. Is this, mm -hmm. is this an opportunity as much as it's been a, a serious concern with transportation deserts and and you know reliability of schedules really um, getting crippled during COVID. Yeah, I, I think people, you know, as we come out of this pandemic, I think a lot of people have rediscovered things like bicycling and walking, um, not only as a mode of transportation but as a way of just staying healthy. Um, and and I think um, cities will be wise to to find thoroughfares that they don't need to utilize as much anymore and just, you know, allowing people to use them as, as, as bicycle thoroughfares to, to, to get to, to work. I, I think encouraging bicycling is going to be uh, part of, part of the future of transportation. Um, 
you know, in terms of inner city um, rail and, and so forth. I, I think Americans are realizing that uh, um, we just went through an existential threat to, to, to our own individual uh, lives. And um, hopefully we're on the other side of it. Um, but um, not only do we not want to repeat that, I also think people are looking for um, real meaning in their lives. And they're looking for um, uh, ways that they can incorporate a better, a better way of living um, in, into the future. And so I, I think that all these things we're talking about, transit, inner city rail, biking, walking, um, better land use choices, bigger, bolder uh, federal um, reach into building our transportation system and helping it sustain itself, uh, climate change. All these things are pieces of where I think Americans want to go. And that's supported by a lot of the polling evidence. You created the Smart City Challenge during your time at DOT. I'm interested in how that helped spark new ideas on providing alternates to car ownership like you're talking about, and what's really the lasting impact of the Smart City Challenge? Smart City Challenge, um, there's so many things about that challenge that um, I'm so proud of, and, and one of them is just the idea that we sparked this competition that started 70-some cities across the country thinking about how to incorporate transportation uh, technology into the life of their cities. And um, uh, what I've now seen are so many cities that have, have taken the plans that they created, even if they didn't win the competition, and they've started making progress against those plans. Kansas City, uh, Denver, San Francisco, um, Austin, Texas, so many of those cities are continuing to make incredibly important progress. Um, I think that um, there, there are several dimensions of what I, what I expect to see with, uh, with, with technology and transportation in cities. Um, I mentioned before, um, the public sector has the ability to tell the, um, the private, uh, you know, hardware and software providers what they need. And what we saw in the smart city competition was a real focus on the unbanked and folks who don't have smartphones. That's, that's the kind of need that, that I think only the public sector can force the private sector to solve for. And we saw solutions, kiosks that were placed in neighborhoods that gave people access to apps and cash based systems that allowed more people to access uh, some of the innovations that occur. Um, uh, and, and supporting the, the, the transit system and uh, what will, I think, become uh, sort of an ecosystem of autonomous vehicles. Um, and I think as we start to move towards automation and, and transportation, um, it'll become easier for people to buy the trips they take rather than buying an individual car um, because they'll have some of the, the same uh, privacy that they've had in their own private automobile, but they'll also be able to offload the driving responsibility to uh, to to the to the software. So you know, all of that I think is coming. Uh, there'll be a gazillion business models that'll be set up to capitalize on it, and I think only a few will actually make it. But um, but I think it's an exciting future and and an opportunity, frankly, 
for people who spend the second largest amount of money in their pocketbook to reduce the amount of money they're spending on transportation because we'll be using more shared shared uh, services. If I can piggyback on the start of Alexa's question about the smart city challenge a little bit. Uh, one of the interesting things I thought about it was uh, it really elevated the mayors of, of many of the cities, particularly the finalists, uh, to, to the you know, national stage. And about the same time, I read this book called If, if Mayors Ruled the World. Uh, and it kind of put forth the idea that, you know, the national government has grown more, more hyperpartisan and, and ineffective and that mayors were perhaps in the best position to, to make meaningful changes. Uh, I'm curious if you would subscribe to that and, uh, you know, what did you see during the, the Smart City Challenge with, with, uh, with mayors in particular? Yeah. Um, mayors are... Um they're just, they're, they're problem solvers and, and you have to be, um, you know, we, we say when, uh, when mayors get together, you know, one of the things that everybody talks about is there's no democratic or Republican pothole. Um, when you're a mayor, it's just your job to fix it. And, um, you don't last long in a job like that. If you don't develop some, some ability to be pragmatic and, and kind of look across, um, the differences that that seem to be so great in Washington and actually problem solve. So uh, it's a it's a skill that I think mayors perfect. I, I would point out that um, while he wasn't a mayor, Joe Biden was actually um, elected to his county commission when he was uh, much younger, um, and so he kind of brings a bit of a of a local government perspective to the job. And of course, our transportation secretary is a former mayor as well. So. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's, um, I'm glad to see more mayors finding their way into federal service because I do think the way that we think about problems is much less us against them. It's more of like, what is the end state we want and how do we get there? And, uh, you know, can this group of people or this party or, um, this committee help us find the solution? And, and I think you'll see that play out as more and more mayors get more and more opportunities to lead. Yeah, obviously, you pointed out that uh, Pete Buttigieg was, was formerly the mayor of, of South Bend. And yourself, you were the mayor of, of Charlotte before taking the, uh, the secretary uh, position at, at DOT. Is there anything in the transportation realm in particular that, uh, that lends itself to, to mayors kind of you know, taking the lead on, on that front? Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're mayor of a city, um, you know, you, you spend a lot of time on public safety issues and you spend a lot of time on transportation issues. Um, and that for me in Charlotte meant um, getting the light rail system expanded into the northern part of our city, um, continuing to build out our overall transit program, uh, trying to get our train station built. Um, it's uh, the largest city in the country with uh, a podunk train station. And so they're still working on it, but I've been helping them even still. Um, our airport, six busiest in the country, um, and now a new intermodal yard that we were able to get done. So you're constantly doing, you're practicing this at a policy level all the time. Um, so when I came to Washington, it wasn't, you know, people, people thought it was like Mr. Smith going to Washington. Um, but, you know, I knew I knew a lot about these different 
pieces of the transportation system. For me, the the thing that I had to learn more about, frankly, was maritime because uh, there's a maritime administration within DOT. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we didn't have a body of water in Charlotte. So that was the one thing I had to learn a little bit about. But but it's um, the, the skills are completely transferable. Uh, Secretary Fox, thanks so much for, for the time today. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground on a lot of different topics. Any any closing thoughts? I'm excited about the future of our of our infrastructure. I think um, we've been needing a, a big push for a long time. And I think the evidence of the seriousness of this administration's push is how early it's coming in the administration. Um, so, um, you know, I would love to see it move in a bipartisan way. But I think the most important thing is that we we see big things happen in this country again and that the world, frankly, see it, because um, I still believe, as I think most people listening, that the best days of this country are ahead of us. We just have to do the work to make that so. Thank you again for the time today. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you again to Secretary Fox for that uh, terrific and thought-provoking conversation. Leslie, who do we have on the schedule for the Shift podcast next week? Uh, Next week on the podcast, we're going to have another exciting guest. That's Christophe Marna. He is the head of electronics and ADAS for supplier ZF. So we hope you can join us. And thanks very much for listening. Mm -hmm.